Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Well, David Chantal, author of The Human Element, overcoming the resistance that awaits new ideas, has identified four frictions that present obstacles for the progression of new ideas within an organisation. David, as a Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management, you teach venture creation, design thinking, healthcare innovation and creativity. But where did your interest in this area come from? I have long been in the healthcare industry, in the healthcare sector, working at healthcare startups, working at biotech startups, and uh, basically love the idea of solving meaningful problems in new ways that benefit human beings. And so that has naturally led me to entrepreneurship, it's led me to design consulting, and it's led me to academia. So talk to us about some of the more interesting projects that you've been working on over the years. So in the capacity of being an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist, helping develop chronic disease management software for people suffering from diabetes and other types of chronic illness, helping bring new drugs to market to treat uh, certain conditions in oncology, helping redesign what breakfast means for commuting Americans and kind of everything in between. We Uh, As human-centered designers, and particularly my background working at IDEO, we apply design thinking towards solving all sorts of problems, from social problems to business problems. And design thinking is looking at the world the way a designer would, specifically by putting the needs of human beings first. Okay, so talk me through that process from a practical perspective. I genuinely believe that at the end of every business process, at the end of every business product, no matter if you're in B2B or B2C, at the end of every one of these experiences as a human being. And the more deeply you understand the needs of those human beings, both stated and unstated, the more meaningful change you can create in their, in their lives. And the best ideas tend to come from the most novel insights into human behavior, uh, which is really where design and design thinking gets its magic and, and really a huge catalyst for the, uh, the writing of this book. So on that basis, are you a big fan of market research? And if so, how should it be approached? Certain types of market research, yes. But I tend to find that that some modalities are are more interesting than others. For example, market research that simply goes out and asks a bunch of survey questions to find out what may be interesting to people is helpful, but it's only partly helpful. The really interesting insights come from why people find it valuable. And I find that qualitative research methods like ethnographic research and interviews and jobs to be done are really helpful at understanding the why behind the what, which is really where the magic comes from. Okay, so for any business owner listening to this morning's show that is embarking on a journey of innovation within their own business, how should they approach research? I would start by being clear on the question that I'm trying to answer. So typically we think about research questions in the frame of reference of what would have to be true for this idea to be successful? What would have to be true for this business to be viable? And then design some experiments to go find out if those things are in fact true. And those experiments need not be fancy. They can be quick and dirty prototypes or sketch level concepts. But the really important thing is to iterate based on what you learn. And what are the common mistakes that businesses make when it comes to innovation? And more importantly, how can they be avoided? 
I think first and foremost, innovation is such a nebulous word. It's almost meaningless because it means so many different things to so many people. So having a very clear definition of what innovation ought to mean in your organization is pretty important. But I also think that true risk-taking, game-changing, or radical improvement types of innovations require both creativity but also an appetite for risk and a willingness to fail. And I think while lots of business owners say the right things about an appetite for risk and a willingness to fail, when it starts feeling uncomfortable, usually they kind of turn back the other direction where it's safe, focus on the core business instead of focusing on the next new thing. So all of this is to say, I think having the fortitude and the wherewithal and the comfort level to know that it is going to get uncomfortable and still to persevere is really the key. So what do business owners need to do to overcome that particular challenge? I think they need to create some constraints for their experimentation. So I think the challenge or the the anxiety and innovation tends to come from not necessarily knowing what all the risks will be and not being able to manage them or quantify them. So what can be helpful is saying we are going to attempt to solve this problem in a new way. And we're going to give ourselves 30 or 45 days to do it. We're going to give ourselves a budget of 10,000 pounds, and we're going to see how far we get. And our hope is that we will get conviction around this idea in that period of time. But by giving that little that those constraints and by sort of fencing a project and giving it limits, it can help take something that might seem large and Herculean and bring it into a more manageable and approachable format. So, David, you are the author of The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance That Awaits New Ideas. It's a new book that's to be published in October. But what was the premise for this book and what prompted you to write it? So this book, which was co-authored by myself and one of my Kellogg colleagues uh, named Lauren Nordgren. Lauren is an expert on influence and persuasion, and I'm an expert on design and, and innovation. Lauren and I were both mesmerized and and perplexed by the same phenomena that we saw playing out in the world, both with his behavioral design work and my innovation and design work, that no matter how how good an idea was, no matter how meaningful a particular innovation might be, and no matter how obvious the benefit would be if people adopted it, that just because you had a good idea doesn't mean that people are actually willing to make change. It doesn't mean they're actually willing to integrate that new idea into their lives. And so we wanted to go and and better understand why is it that people say no to good ideas? Why is it that something that is obviously beneficial, that is obviously going to help somebody live a better, healthier, stronger, faster life, what is it about these ideas or what is it about our reaction to these ideas that make us think twice? And so we've spent the last couple of years doing research around this idea and the findings of that research and the frameworks that we've created are in this book. And what it led us to was the identification of four frictions, as we call them, frictions that stand in the way of a new idea being adopted. And the frictions that we write about in this book is one, which we refer to as inertia, which is people's desire to stick with the status quo. And human beings are creatures of habit, and no matter how good a new idea is, unless it overcomes people's inertia or, or, or default to the status quo, people won't change. The second is around effort. How much effort, both physical, mental, emotional, does the change require? The third is emotional friction, which is what are the feelings of anxiety or concern that might stand in the way of adoption? 
And the fourth is something that we call reactance, which is human beings' natural aversion to being changed. And what we find is that in almost every new innovation project or new business that's created or new social movement, all four of these frictions are typically present to one extent or another. But until you accurately identify which frictions are pushing back against the change and find ways to mitigate them, people won't actually make the change you're hoping for. Now, that's very interesting. I do want to expand on each of those four frictions with you next. Let's start with inertia. So what, in your experience, needs to happen for people to overcome this? So inertia is interesting. And and part of the reason that people get stuck uh, with inertia is that um, often new ideas tend to feel very unfamiliar. And so what we advise people to do in particular with inertia, one of the techniques that we describe in the book, and every, every friction has a couple of techniques for mitigating it, one in particular for inertia is to make unfamiliar ideas feel more familiar. And a good example of this uh, that, that most people can wrap their heads around might come from Apple products or, or some of the, the OSs for Mac computers. One of the ways Steve Jobs got everybody interested in using the Mac operating system was to design it in a way where it didn't feel like a computer, to design it in a way where it worked the way the rest of your world worked, which is why it's no coincidence that in a Mac, you put your files in folders and you put your folders on a desktop and you put your discarded documents in the trash. He designed the user interface, even though it was a new experience for people to work the way the rest of their world works. And a lot of people will point to Apple products and say, wow, they're so intuitively designed. What Lauren and I would argue is actually intuitive is an output of good design, not an input of good design. And the reason it's intuitive is because it works the way you expect it to because they've designed it to fit into people's lives instead of asking them to change. The second of the four frictions, effort, and effort refers to the idea of following the path of least resistance. But how do aerodynamic ideas help us to ditch this restrictive path? There is an interesting uh, segment of the design community called interaction design or UX design, user experience design. User experience designers, their sole job is to remove friction from the progress that somebody is trying to make with a given product or service. And oftentimes, uh, despite the fact that you go out and you, you mentioned market research at the beginning of this call, if I went out and asked a customer what they would want in a new piece of software, they'd probably say something like, well, I want it to be able to have all these different fonts and all these different colors and perform all these different tasks and put all of these different types of shapes and documents and, and, and figures into documents. And what you're left with is a piece of software that is about as complicated as Microsoft Word, which is a perfectly good Word document, a perfectly good word processing software, but it is so feature-rich that some people open it up and get paralyzed by the number of things they can do. Sometimes to be a good innovator and to be a good designer, you need to over amplify simplicity. Just because something can have multiple features doesn't mean that it should. Just because it can do a lot of things doesn't mean that it ought to. And starting simple and streamlining the experience can be a great way to overcome some of that anxiety that swirls around effort. In your book, you discuss how the best ideas often cause the most anxiety. Why is this the case? Every time you're asking somebody to do something different than they normally would, it always comes with a bit of trepidation. It always comes with a bit of reluctance. Uh, Change, by definition, is a bit of an emotional experience. 
And it's just how much anxiety stands in the way of that change. And, 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 and emotional friction is tricky because people don't typically wear their emotional reasons for doing things or not doing things on their sleeve. Uh, what you tend to see is the symptoms of emotional friction instead of the actual cause of emotional friction. So uh, somebody getting angry at you at work about a proposal, it might not be the proposal that's the problem. It might be the fact that they feel threatened by what this means for their job. They wouldn't probably say in a meeting, hey, I don't like this idea because it threatens my my uh, my job security at this company and that makes me insecure. They'll say other things. And so what you have to do is start listening for the causes of emotional friction, uh, which are often different than what people say. What people say and what they feel are, are, are quite different things. So in the book, we talk about a couple of different research methods, whether it's ethnographic research or empathy research, uh, extreme users, to help understand what that emotional friction is underneath those symptoms. And David, in every aspect of life, emotive reactions need to be handled with care. But when it comes to new ideas, what are the best strategies for overcoming the fears which people have? Ideally, the, the, the best solutions, and it really depends on whether or not it's a consumer product we're talking about or a strategy that we're talking about or a new venture, but bringing people along on the design process is a really helpful way. And, and one of the remedies for overcoming reactants that we talk about in this book, and again, reactants is people's aversion to being changed. People will typically push back on a change with the same amount of force as that change is being imposed on them. One of the ways we can overcome the friction of reactants is by co-designing experiences with those we're, we're trying to serve. Invite them into the design process, invite them into the innovation process. So instead of feeling like an idea is being sold to them, they feel like they've got some pride of inventorship around the idea itself. And particularly in B2B and enterprise solutions, this can be a highly effective way to overcome some of that resistance. And it has often been said in jest that the only people that like change in this world are babies with dirty nappies. But on a serious note, <laughs> why does change cause such resistance? I think we tend to we tend to celebrate and find comfort in the familiar, and and none of this is more apparent than when uh, there is something that is clearly beneficial for people. Like for example, if a physician tells you to eat healthier and exercise or you're going to be at risk of cardiac arrest or to quit smoking instead of uh, persisting smoking. I mean, all of these we know by scientific evidence to be highly beneficial for people for longevity and health. But yet our habits are really hard to break and getting people to reconsider the way they've lived or the way they've worked for sometimes decades and decades uh, is a lot harder than it sounds. And what we generally find is that most companies and most individuals try to tip the scales by providing facts and data and figures. But one of the things that we talk about in the, in the book is that your facts are not necessarily going to be compelling. In fact, sometimes your facts actually cause greater pushback on innovation or greater pushback on ideas. And of course, the fourth friction is reactants. So what advice do you have for companies about how to overcome this obstacle? When it comes to overcoming reactants, there's two techniques that we talk about, uh, with a few techniques we talk about in this book. But one is around, are you asking or telling people? If you're telling people to do something or you're selling them something very hard, you should know that their natural reaction is going to be to push back because of human behavior. We push against things that we feel like we are being pushed upon. 
Um, so can you find ways of asking people and including them and questioning them and understanding some of the rationale behind their resistance versus showering them with facts and figures to try to get them to change? And the other is this, this idea of co-design that we talked about before. If you can include them in the design process, if you can get them to participate in the creation of the new idea, there's a higher likelihood they will be bought in. And finally, David, in terms of practical examples, have you any case studies of how businesses have put this friction theory into practice and the results that they've achieved? Yes, uh, we do. There's, there's several, in fact. One that uh, I've been talking quite a lot about in the United States. Uh, in the U.S., we're experiencing a very hot real estate market. There's this really interesting conundrum in the U.S. that's happening right now, which is most people that would like to buy a home are unable to buy them because inventory is low and sellers are biased to taking deals that are all cash, which blocks out the vast majority of American home buyers. So there are a few companies in the United States that have identified this tension and identified this challenge, one of which is a company called Fly Homes, which is based in Seattle. And Fly Homes has developed an entire business model designed to remove the friction from the buying process for buyers and to remove the friction of the selling process for sellers. And the way they do this, the really elegant way they do this, is to underwrite the offers that each of their sellers make or sorry, each of their buyers make for a new home. So if you work with Fly Homes and you wanted to buy a very uh, high demand or a very uh, desirable home, and typically you'd be competing against other buyers that didn't require mortgages, Fly Homes will basically financially guarantee the purchase of that home. And if you're unable to secure financing, Fly Homes, the company, will take responsibility for purchasing that home, which makes every buyer now that works with Fly Homes an all-cash buyer and it makes every seller that works with Fly Homes absolutely certain that their home will sell and sell on time. And by simply designing this business model in this way, they've removed a ton of friction on both the sell side and the buy side. And as a result, have over a period of three short years grown to a business that's worth almost a billion dollars. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was Professor David Chantal from the Kellogg School of Management whose new book, The Human Element, will be published in October. And I'd like to thank David for sharing his fascinating insights with us this morning. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.